0: Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the diverse worlds of regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gauthier, and I'm thrilled to guide you through this week's episode, so let's jump right in.
1: Written by the world's leading sustainable builders, designers, and engineers, New Society Publishers' Sustainable Building Essentials series covers the full range of natural and green building techniques with a focus on sustainable materials and methods and code compliance. From rainwater harvesting to composting toilets to straw bale, rammed earth, hempcrete, and more, these unique books present the essential information on each topic.
0: Find out more about the Sustainable Building Essentials series at newsociety.com. We're now well into this ongoing series on natural building and design, and we've covered bamboo building, rocket stoves, design at the building and community levels, and so much more already. One of the biggest topics that I haven't yet explored on this podcast, and has always interested me, is the subject of renewable energy. Now, renewables have been in the media for a long time, both branded as a solution to our collective reliance on fossil fuel energy, and also criticized for being too expensive for people to install or implement at the home scale. Luckily, I had the chance to speak with Dan Chiris, the author of many books on renewable energy and other regenerative living skills, including Power from the Sun, Power from the Wind, Solar Energy Basics, Solar Home Heating Basics, The Homeowner's Guide to Renewable Energy, solar electricity basics, and many more. The best part about Dan's knowledge is that he has implemented the systems that he writes about for himself and can speak from experience about living long term with solar and wind energy systems as well as the maintenance and repair costs over time. In this interview, Dan goes into detail about all the practical differences in solar, wind, and other renewable energy systems. He walks me through the process of examining the potential of each resource, calculating the size of the system based on your consumption, and more. We also talk about the advantages of grid-connected versus fully off-grid systems, as well as hybrid options. Dan also gives great advice to homeowners considering renewable energy installations, and even how to look into tax incentives and cooperative buying schemes to reduce the initial upfront cost of installing a system. I've also included links to all of Dan's books on renewable energy for anyone looking to get a more in-depth understanding of a particular application, so be sure to check out the resource section on the show notes for this episode. But before I ramble on too much, I'll hand things over now to Dan. Hey, Dan, thanks so much for taking the time to be with me today. How are you doing? I'm doing well,
1: thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Hey, the pleasure's all mine now. I am really excited to talk to you about the whole myriad of things that you've written about with New Society, but we're going to focus a little bit today on renewable energy for home based use. So, what do you say? We just jump into the questions. It sounds good. All right. So, you've written a number of books with New Society covering a range of topics from renewable energy, green transport, parenting, natural plasters, creating sustainable neighborhoods, and a whole bunch more that's a really overarching uh, reach there. What is sort of the worldview that informs these topics and how did you get interested in all this stuff?
1: I've always been interested in the big picture and, and you know, I'm a, I have a PhD and that always drove me crazy to be so narrowly focused on one little thing, you know, through my research, just one little tiny, tiny thing. And my mind is just interested in the whole, the totality and, I wrote an environmental science textbook years ago, and each chapter was its own little, you know, its own little uh, universe. You know, the chapter on air pollution was here's here's what air pollution is, here's how you solve it. And then water pollution, here's water pollution, here's how you solve it. And I just got to thinking, you know, we're not looking at underlying root causes and root level solutions, and that's what got me into the big picture, is to really start thinking about big, big things, you know, and how all this fits together. And, and so that's, that's kind of why I've spun out so many ideas. It's all part of this big picture for creating a sustainable future.
0: And have you implemented a lot of these things that you've written about in your own
1: life? Oh, absolutely. I've been doing it for years, years and years and years.
0: All right. So let's start from the beginning then. Let's talk a little bit about the benefits and the potential of installing a renewable energy system. Okay,
1: all right uh, now there's a lot of different types of renewable energy systems uh, in many cases, one of the main benefits besides producing cleaner power, much cleaner power, and creating more self sufficiency and, and those are, those are pretty big ones by themselves. We could just end the conversation there sure. but in, in most cases, what's really shocking is it's a lot cheaper than going the conventional route, and this is unfortunately. There's a stigma with renewables that most people think, oh, I can't afford renewables, they're too expensive, you know, and the fact of the matter is, um, many renewable energy, uh, forms of renewable energy, renewable energy systems, I should say, are actually cheaper than going the standard route. Just take one example, very, very briefly, solar electricity, you know, and everybody looks at that and goes, oh man, that's just so expensive. The, pro- the fact is, when you uh, you install a solar electric system, you're now producing electricity at about anywhere from four to six cents a kilowatt hour. Now, most of us are pay- paying between eight and twenty cents a kilowatt hour. Now, and here's the rub: is that what solar appears expensive because solar electricity because you have to purchase the technology up front. You're basically prepaying your electric bill for the next 30 years. So on face value it says wow that's a lot of money but the fact of the matter is it's a lot cheaper than just buying utility power for the next 30 years month after month after month much much cheaper. So that's one of the huge benefits is cost effectiveness cleaner planet uh, self-sufficiency. So those are three of the, the big ones. And then there's some bragging rights too. We are, you know, many of us like to just say, hey, I'm powered entirely by wind and solar.
0: Yeah. And I mean, think about the sense of security you must feel knowing that, you know, you're not tied to the grid and all the things that can go wrong with those larger systems. You have a li- at least a little bit of redundancy if uh, if you're still connected through other means as well.
1: Yeah. Now, one thing that we need to be really clear about is if I install a solar electric system on my home and I'm, can most people still connect to the grid and what that allows them to do is uh, to store any surplus they generate during the day for use at night or use during the next day. So 99.9% of the systems like mine, we are still actually grid connected. And, and here's the rub is if the grid goes down, so does my system. My system is designed so it won't backfeed electricity onto a dead grid, which could be very, very damaging to you know, line workers. Uh, to, to truly be independent, you need to install batteries. We don't do that very much. Batteries are pretty expensive. There is a lot of maintenance involved. They don't have a very long lifespan. I've lived off-grid for many years in Colorado. I mean, I, I've done it. I've lived 14 years off-grid in Colorado, and battery banks are pretty challenging. So, so one of the things that we have to let people understand is that in most cases, if you install wind or solar and you're grid-tied, you really are vulnerable to the, to the grid. You really are vulnerable to breakdowns, uh, brownouts, or blackouts uh, that occur in the grid. That said, there are some ways around that. There's some interesting technologies that some, manufa- some manufacturers are p- producing devices that will allow you to, to still connect to your solar system even though the grid goes down. So there's some ways around it, but they're not very widely implemented.
0: Okay, well, let's break down uh, some of the advantages and disadvantages of those systems now. So there's the entirely off-grid ones. There are those that are still connected to the grid. And I know that this differs in, in different parts of the world or even in different parts of the same countries is the ability to sell the electricity back and either get a rebate or a credit system from the utilities. Where have you seen the, the most success or adoption? And what are the advantages of each type of system?
1: Okay, so let's start with systems first. Grid tied, um, is the least expensive. It's the simplest to install and the most reliable. There are just not many moving parts, okay, There's an inverter and solar modules, and that's about it. So that's the big advantage of grid type. Cheap, cheapest, least expensive, easiest to install, and real easy to maintain, and very, 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 very reliable. Okay, so that's, that's number one. Then we can have grid connected with battery backup. Now that's a system that produces all your electricity but it keeps. A, it has a small battery bank, you know, usually just six or eight batteries um, that are in your basement or someplace safe that are always full of electricity. Their job is simply to wait for the grid to go down, and if the grid goes down for 10 minutes or 10 hours or 10 days, your system converts to essentially converts to an off-grid system. So you now start operating off your solar or wind system with your battery backup so you become autonomous now they're um they're pretty they're more expensive than grid tied more complicated. the batteries yeah mostly and there are more components there's a battery there's a charge controller device called a charge controller that needs to be installed special type of inverter Um, the problem and i love these systems the problem with these systems is that in most places, electricity is pretty reliable, so you very, very rarely need your battery backup. As a consequence, most people forget they even exist. And, you know, they might go eight or ten years without watering their batteries. And, I mean, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I did it just recently. I forgot to water my batteries for a couple years. We just don't run it. We just don't have um, power outages where we live. And I went to check the batteries and they were bone dry. So that is a disadvantage, you know, out of sight, out of mind. Those batteries, those batteries need to be maintained. Um, If you do that, then you, then you've got power when the grid goes down. Not as much as you used to have, because we typically in these systems smaller, install a smaller battery bank. It's just for backup loads or most important, uh, not backup, but critical loads the things that we, absolutely must have you know like big screen tv you know the really important stuff in our yeah, of <laughs> no but refrigerators freezers well pumps that kind of thing and so the third system is battery based these are the most complicated well they're i think they're actually a little less complicated than grid tied with battery backup but they're pretty complicated very expensive much more expensive than a grid tied system but they deliver complete autonomy they, you basically become your own power producer, and you became, become the, the only customer. So you're, you're the utility and you're the consumer, and they're designed primarily for people that um, live kind of far away from a power line. If you live more than two-tenths of a mile or so from a power line, it's often cheaper just to go ahead and install an off-grid system, a battery-based off-grid system, Then to connect to the utility power because it can cost you quite a lot of money. I I had a a customer in Colorado when I lived there, and they lived a mile off the uh, away from the utility lines, and the utility charged them sixty five thousand dollars just to bring power to these two little tiny cabins. So, wow! And and they were little tiny cabins. I could have got them a lot of solar for sixty five thousand dollars. Believe me, I could have got. 10 systems for those cabins. So so that's where they really come in handy. Um, off-grid systems are popular in Canada because the country's much bigger and they're not necessarily, uh, you know, people aren't always connected to the grid. Off-grid systems are popular in less developed countries where there isn't a reliable grid. They are more expensive and there is battery maintenance. You really need to maintain those batteries every month. Check the water level. And if it drops down, fill it with distilled water. So, so that's kind of the main pros and cons. I hope that that helps. There's a lot there to think about. Most people go grid type because it's the simplest kind of system. Go sure. Grid-
0: now, do you have much experience with different types of batteries? I know you're mostly referring to lead acid uh, batteries, the same ones that most people are familiar having in their car, right? And I know yeah. that there are also types that don't need to be watered, or at least I've come across them absolutely Um, and does that make much of a difference in the maintenance costs
1: of keeping those things running i think that it it's 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 not costly to maintain them it's just time consuming yeah in my my understanding i i've never worked with any other batteries like the lithium batteries that uh, tesla now makes a lithium battery and there are other companies that make them as well these are actually much better batteries for solar electric systems for one, you can deep discharge them more easily without damaging them. They probably have a little bit longer lifespan. There's no maintenance whatsoever. But my, when I run the calculations on them, they're, it's, they're kind of expensive. They're, they're gonna Yeah, pay they're
0: quite more, a bit more expensive.
1: Yeah, they're quite a bit more, maybe twice, maybe even three times more expensive than lead acid. So we gotta get that price down, but that's definitely something to look into. Have you looked at all into saltwater battery banks? I have not. I
0: have Okay. Not. I, I haven't met anybody who's installed one of these systems, but I started doing some research on this myself a little while ago. It seems promising. There's, you know, like any other type of um, battery technology at the moment, there are drawbacks, but it seems to be somewhat of an improvement on the lead acid. So if anybody out there is listening and has experience with the saltwater batteries, please get in touch with me. I'd love to know more. Um, what are some of the other maintenance costs and things to consider in the lifespan of an off-grid system, or let's say, um, a home scale renewable energy system?
1: Well, you know, the grid tide, there's virtually no maintenance whatsoever. I have a, a system on a home in Colorado. I used to live there. Now I rent the property. Uh, the only maintenance that's occurred, let's see, that was system went in, in 1996. So figure out how many that's yeah, 22 years. The only maintenance I've had to do is I had to go up and, uh, fix a little piece of conduit that was protecting the wire and I had to I'd tighten a bolt so they did come loose. That's it for a grid tight system, wow. really, really low maintenance, really, really low maintenance. And and I always encourage people if they're thinking about go, going grid-tied to install the microinverters. And the reason I recommend them is they come with a 25-year warranty, so if there's any kind of problem. The company will replace them in 25 years. That's pretty dang good. So, I really like the microinverters. I've had personally really good experience in installing them. They've been very reliable. I think I've had one go bad in 10 years, and that wow. in a customer system. So, I like them a lot, and and I like that 25 year warranty. The main type of inverter called a string inverter. Um, they team they don't they come with much shorter warranties which tells you something right you know if something comes with a five-year warranty that's still pretty good but it means you're you know you might have some problems after five years and I've had I've had more trouble with the string inverters having to replace them and they're pretty expensive to replace three 000, four thousand dollars mm. so now when you go to batteries it's really just a matter either a grid tight system with battery backup or an off-grid system, totally battery-based system, the, the main, the main um, uh, maintenance just is every month checking those batteries to make sure that the water level is, is covering those lead plates. And it doesn't take that long, but um, it's something you must do. Now, here's the problem is when most people install batteries, the first year there's no maintenance. They're, they just don't require water. It's kind of like what we call the honeymoon phase. Everything is just hunky dory, and then after a year, they get very demanding. It's like you better be on them every month. Make sure that water level's correct. Mm. So if you don't and let them and you let them dry out, you've ruined a battery bank and. So now th- that said, there are some really nice automatic watering systems, which I highly recommend That's what I put on my system in Colorado. Actually, it was a, it's a system that uh, each battery gets hooked up to, uh, to a pipe, a tubing, a piece of tubing, and then you just basically stick this tubing down in a, a gallon jug full of distilled water and pump, pump the distilled water into those batteries. You don't have to remove battery caps or anything, just pump them until they're full and you're done. So it my batteries in Colorado used to take, oh, 30, 35, 40 minutes to check and fill. It became a five-minute job. And it was much easier to think about, oh, it's time for batteries. Okay, it's only going to be five minutes. Let's do it. Whereas you know, in the old system, it's time to check batteries. Oh, geez, I don't have 35, 40 minutes right now. I'll do it next time. You know? and, Right, and right.
0: We'll push it on down the, the line.
1: Yeah, it comes a year later. <laughs> so so um, that's pretty much it for, for maintenance is, uh, in both systems. Very infrequently, do we ever have to clean modules? You know, I, I've never cleaned a solar module. If you lived off a really dusty road, you might have to go out there and spray them with a hose once in a while. But by and large, the rain takes care of the cleaning. Um, very, very little maintenance in these systems, which is cool.
0: Now, did you, you look ever at have a problem wind,
1: with like snow cover in Colorado? I yeah I did. You know we got we lived in the foothills up in Evergreen, Colorado, and we would typically get evening snows. You know it would snow six inches to twelve inches, sometimes two two feet, and the and the solar array was just completely covered with snow. And so I I had a a, a, a scraper, a really soft rubber scraper on a long aluminum pole, and I would just get on a a ladder and I'd never get on the roof and just kind of pull that snow off. Um, I do not have the problem now that we're living in Missouri. We just don't get the snow. Mm. So, you know, so it just depends on where you, where you are. And and of course you can wait it out, but I was just too impatient if I had, you know, when I was living off grid, if the modules were covered with snow, I wasn't going to wait for two or three days for them to melt. I was going to get up there and get them getting, get them running immediately.
0: Yeah, of course. In the winter, is not a good time to lose power either.
1: No. <laughs> and an off-grid home, that's usually when your highest demands are. So there's the least amount of solar energy, and those are, that's the period with your highest demand.
0: Yeah. So before we start breaking down how to calculate a system or figure out your consumption and things like that, let's backtrack a little bit and talk about the different options for generating your own power on a small scale. We've talked mostly okay. about solar up until this point, but I know there's quite a few other options.
1: Yes, there are. There's one, another option if you're in a good windy site is wind energy. And I, I have to emphasize good windy site, you know, like Kansas or Oklahoma or Wyoming and parts of many parts of eastern Colorado. So you want to be in a good windy site and um, wind energy in a site Uh, in a good site actually it's pretty affordable it's pretty economical solar is a little tends to be a little cheaper just because of this mass production of solar modules so solar's kind of done this you know it's kind of taken over the market just because it's it's less expensive but wind is a great great resource amazing resource in a lot of areas Uh, don't let anybody talk you into putting a turbine up on a short tower though in order to get the power you need, that turbine really needs to be up there 100, 120 feet above ground surface. So, it, I, I really like wind. I love wind. I have my own wind turbine. I'm a nationally certified wind site assessor. I have installed a bunch of them. But um, there are fewer places where suited, where wind systems are suitable. And... Um, They do tend to be a little more costly just because the price of materials that go into wind turbines haven't decreased like they have in solar. Hmm. As an
0: assessor, what would you consider a site that shows a lot of potential? Like what kind of constant or high wind speeds are you looking for in an area?
1: Personally, I would like to have at the tower height, say at 100 or 120 feet, I'd like an average wind speed of 12 miles an hour at least.
0: And that's Um, all throughout the year, or through most seasons.
1: That's the average annual. That's the average annual.
0: Where can you get that kind of data? Can you make those sort of assessments yourself by doing a little online research?
1: Yeah, there. Well, you know, it's pretty tricky, but there is a NASA has a website. It's uh, uh, the name is forgot. I've slipped my memory right now, but there NASA has a website for solar energy and meteorological data. And it, you can actually go to your site, you know, the longitude and latitude, plug those numbers in, and it'll give you a chart. And then you, what you do is you tell it how tall your tower is going to be. And it will tell you the average wind speed uh, in January, February, March, April, May, so every month of the year, and then an annual average. Um, so that's, that is one good uh, way to do it. It's a little tricky if you're not trained. I mean, it's a little hard to navigate through that website. The best way is to contact a certified solar installer or a a company that installs wind turbines and have them do an assessment for you. They can go online and get that data for you pretty easily. Okay, good. Yeah. And so, generally, I
0: no, was go just going to say
1: generally, Generally, you know, east of the Mississippi is not that great of a wind resource. Missouri is not that great of a wind resource, the northwestern corner. But when you start getting into North Dakota, South Dakota, Texas, Colorado, Kansas, uh, Nebraska, Wyoming, um, you've got some really good wind resources in those areas. Now, is it true that wind holds more kinetic energy the colder it is? Um, oh, goodness. Now i got to think. Uh, let's see. Air density. I, heard,
0: I, I can't remember where I got this information, but uh, they were talking about how wind farms installed in places like California, though they get the same wind speeds as, say, southern Minnesota or North Dakota in some cases, uh, they produce less energy because cold wind has higher kinetic energy. Uh,
1: and, and, and I think that what's really the air density is primarily affected by humidity. Okay, And I think that that's, the, and I have for some reason, I just can't remember what the relationship is, but it's one of those factors that's pretty small. Okay. You know, when You look at the power equation for wind product, for the power that's available in the wind, air density is the, the least important factor of any of them. The, okay. the wind speed, which is determined by your site and how tall your tower is. That's the critical one. The power is a, is a cubic function of that. In other words, for the, the power that's available is V cubed. So if your wind speed is 10 miles an hour, it's 10 times 10 times 10 is the power that's available. If it's 12, it's 12 times 12 times 12, which is a much bigger number. So <laughs> that's really the critical thing to look at is the tower height and the average wind speed.
0: Gotcha. All right, so let's talk about some of the other lesser known or less common forms of generating
1: power. Okay. Well, we a, we've talked about wind. And the, there is a, a, a really cool way of generating electricity, and that is uh, hydropower, micro hydropower. Now, wind is limited in its distribution compared to solar. Solar is pretty much works anywhere. There's good solar sites pretty much anywhere. Um, wind, there are fewer good sites, still lots of them in this country. Microhydro is basically uh, diverting water from a small stream, running it downhill through a pipe into a little turbine that's, that spins furiously as that water flows through it. That's much more limited because you need to be in mountainous terrain generally for microhydro to work. And that's not always true, but generally that's those are the best places like the rocky mountains or the cascade mountains you so you can see that this is a much smaller um consumer base if you will
0: sure uh, if you don't have that drop in elevation you're not going to get the head pressure needed to generate any power
1: precisely i i couldn't i should be interviewing you <laughs> good job that's i'm a,
0: good with some of the jargon i did do a little bit in engineering
1: good man a good man yeah that's that's basically it now we tend to get we tend to get stuck on on electricity, but there are a lot of other there are other ways to use renewable energy. For example, um, I have always heated my homes with passive solar, and this is one of the things I always tell people: is passive solar is basically you're designing your house and orienting your house so that it will absorb it that low angled winter sun. During the period that you need it the most, when you need heat the most, and so you basically build a home um, so that it's oriented in such a way, and you build it so the windows on the south side there are more windows on the south side, and what they do is they capture that low angled winter sun and provide heat throughout the winter for free. It's really a highly overlooked technology extremely cost effective i I always joke that. It's such an important free source of energy. There, there ought to be a national law requiring every home builder to install some kind of passive solar. Now, I'm not proposing that. I don't, I don't want anybody to call me up and call me a socialist. But the, the fact of the matter is it's, it's just free heating for life. And if you could, every house that was built in this country could just include 25%. That's a significant impact. Uh, That would have a significant impact on the amount of energy we use to heat our homes. And what's really cool about passive solar, this idea of just capturing that low-angle winter sun through south-facing windows, is everything you do to incorporate passive solar heating will actually help your home stay cooler in the summer. Now, I don't have time to go into all that. You can find that in my books, but so so you're getting more bang for your buck. You're getting a warmer home. Home is going to be naturally warmer in the winter and naturally cooler in the summer. So you're going to save on heating and cooling costs at very little additional expense, very, very little additional expense. So That's something that people really ought to consider if they're looking at building a retirement home or just starting their very first home. Look into the passive solar heating and cooling and and design that home so you get anywhere from 50 to 80% of your heating and cooling for free. It's a pretty phenomenal bargain for just a little bit of, uh, of intelligent design.
0: No, I agree. I'm so glad you mentioned that. It's one of the things that I teach in my courses, and I, I have really looked into this for a while, not just the passive heating like you mentioned, the passive cooling like that, and how those two can correlate with a similar design, how they feed into each other, and some of the really inventive ways that people all around the world have designed structures to take advantage of the context, the climactic conditions where they are to, you know, create as comfortable of a space inside without having to import energy and I, I know we're going to talk about this more in this interview but uh, no matter how you're producing your energy or where you're getting it from you're always going to benefit by taking uh, or making the best use of the free natural resources around you before you have to put in some kind of more complex um, infrastructure or machinery to generate power to sort of make up the difference from bad design or, you know, poor materials or, or building.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, here's a good case example. Last year, we, we built, we, had, we, we moved to Missouri, bought a house and unfortunately had a house fire in 2011. So I ended up rebuilding. And of course, I rebuilt this massive, or not this massive, but this incredibly efficient passive solar home. Um our R fifty walls, you know, most homes are like R nineteen, R one hundred ceilings, uh, glass on the south side. And last summer we have a we have a what's called an air source heat pump or a mini split for for some of the summer days to kind of cool it off. And last summer it broke down and my wife suggested, let's see if we can make it through the summer without AC at all, any AC at all. And we did that, all that insulation and that proper design kept that house pretty cool. There were only a few days where, we were uncomfortable, you know. We we'd sleep with a fan on us at night. So, it's a it's amazing benefit, and we're and we're just missing out on a on, on a free resource, just an absolute free resource.
0: Absolutely. Now, before we move on to another topic, are there any other uh, forms of power generation that you want to cover quickly?
1: I would. I'd like to cover solar hot water. Now, for years, um, we've been installing solar hot water collectors on roofs, and basically. What they're designed is to heat your water in your home for its domestic hot water. Some of these systems can be expanded and be used for space heating, but that they're not too cost effective. But the solar uh, solar hot water for domestic hot water is pretty cost effective. What we're finding though is that there's some new technologies that are kind of knocking them out of the out of the out of business. So if you're thinking, hey, I'd like to get free hot water or solar heated hot water, what we're finding is that it's much cheaper to just install about three or four solar modules and in your home install what's called a hybrid water heater. And a hybrid water heater um, basically will suck air, suck heat out of the air, say, in your basement, it will heat your water and so you can get most of your heat most of your hot water just from heat in your home and it, and then what lit and and then if you need some more in this and there's a backup um, electric heating element in the unit and if you need more you can get that from the solar module so that that new system the solar electricity with a hybrid water heater is about half or a third of the cost of a solar hot water system. So I I would be remiss to to not to not mention that. I do want to point out too is that we've overlooked the most obvious <laughs> the most obvious strategy and that's energy efficiency making your home more energy efficient. That's the cheapest way to save energy. It's the cheapest way. I I I kind of see it as a way of generating energy because every btu of energy or we kill a lot of energy that you don't use is kind of like making it you know it's kind of it's kind of a renewable energy resource so that's that's where there's still some really simple things you can do to your home just to trim your energy demand and i would just check into those first before you even think about this other stuff i've been talking about
0: Well, it's like you talked about in your house with the higher levels of insulation, the glass put on strategic parts, especially high insulation in the roofs where most people lose all of their heat or, I mean, I guess cooling is a little bit different, but ventilation comes more into play uh, when you're talking about summer months or hotter climates. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's a whole nother topic. We could go for at least another interview just on efficiency (laughs) and how to cut energy consumption on its own. Um, maybe you know, we'll do that again sometime, but I,
1: let's I'd be happy to. there one thing I would say in the summer, most people don't realize it, but 40% of their heat gain comes through the ceiling as the, during the, on a hot summer day, your attic will get up to 150 degrees Fahrenheit and then that heat leaks into your home. So mm. adding, adding that insulation for the winter also protects you in the summer. Just really important point. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that outer envelope is really key, especially if you live in those climates where there's a big temper di- differential between seasons, where it swings oh, like that.
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: Yeah, I've uh, I've had a lot of a lot more experience working in areas with very uh, forgiving climates. My last <laughs> projects were in Guatemala, and we didn't even have to think about insulation because we're in a climate that they call uh, permanent spring. Uh, siempre <laughs> primavera. And so there was a lot that we could get away with. But now that I am moving around and working in other places again, I'm like, okay, got to, got to think insulation once again.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: (laughs) All right. So let's start uh, where we were talking about before, from the beginning in calculating your consumption and leading into how to size a system and assess which of your options are going to be best for your context.
1: Okay. All right. And now... Assessing how much energy used, you, how much energy, both natural gas or propane and electricity, is pretty easy if you've been living in a house. So if you're in a house now, all you need to do is look at your utility bills for the last couple of years. And I like people to go back two or three years at least, go back as far as you can, well, two or three years. and then And then one, look for trends. Is the energy use increasing? If it is, you want to take that into account. If it's decreasing, you want to take that into account. But you can simply go to your utility bills and determine how many kilowatt hours of electricity you use. It's, all, it's listed there, and the kilowatt hours is and it's what they, the utilities, it's a measurement the utilities use to um, charge you, to bill you. So you can get that information, kilowatt hours used per month, per year, uh, from your bills. And then you can average it together, or you can also go online oftentimes to your utility's website. If you have your account number, they will that information will be available to you. And with that information, then you can size the solar electric system. And then you just basically, there's some calculation, a simple calculation you have to do to determine that. You're best probably to, you know, to let a solar designer do that for you and size your system for you. Um, because they will also take into account any possible shading. Say you're going to put a solar array on your roof, but it's shaded 10% of the year. You need to take that into account. Um, and say your roof isn't exactly oriented to true south, uh, which, you know, if it's not exactly oriented right, you'll have to take that into account. But it's, it's not that difficult to find out how much you use and then to determine a system size based on. On your annual energy consumption.
0: And once you've figured out what sort of consumption you're likely gonna have even moving forward and predicting that uh, maybe a couple years ahead and some of the variables of like if your family is going to grow, if you're going to um, be entertaining a lot or any of those variables that you know kind of only you can assess, what's the next step from there? Do you Recommend that most people call a professional, or is this the type of, especially if we're talking about solar, the type of system that someone could take on the installation of themselves?
1: Yeah, well, I, I would generally, I mean, you can do it yourself. Let me start. You can do it yourself. Um, the math isn't that hard, but and it's explained in, in uh, I think more of my more advanced books like Solar uh, Power from the Sun. I explain how you how you do the math. Um, you could easily take it to an installer and just say, hey, here's my consumption. What size system do I need? They can do it in seconds because they've done it so many times in your area. And uh, better yet, they should come out to your site and determine it for you. As a rule, I I don't recommend people install solar systems unless they're pretty skilled in electrical and they have a pretty good idea of construction. You know, if you're mounting a solar system on a roof, you really need to know what you're doing. It's it's, um, it's, they're actually pretty complicated to get. The, well, for a solar installer, it's not complicated, but for, a, for an individual who doesn't understand the electrical code, um, you can make a lot of mistakes. So I, I generally recommend you hire someone um, either to help you, someone who's an installer, or, uh, a, a, a certified installer or an experienced installer, or you hire a company to do it for you.
0: And so once you've decided on which type of system you're going to install, the size of it and how you might install it, still people I know get hung up on the initial cost. Because like you mentioned in the beginning, though you are saving money in the long run, sometimes it can be hard to come up with the funds to prepay that far in advance. But there's also a lot of different ways of saving money in that uh, that have come up recently, things like grants, tax breaks, even buying in bulk through co-ops. Do you have any experience or recommendations for some of those alternative ways of financing a system in the beginning?
1: Absolutely. Um, it, and I'm not going to repeat what you said, but, but it is a shock to someone. And, and so as an installer, what I always did was I showed people, here's your initial cost, and here's what the electricity is going to cost over its lifetime using solar versus the utility grid, and that's pretty convincing when they find out they're going to be paying two or three times more by just staying on the grid. Um, but but you know some people just can't come up with twenty five thousand dollars or thirty thousand dollars. You can take a loan for it. That's one option. Uh, there are other options like community solar. One this is a this is a, a, a movement that's popping up and becoming quite strong in states like Colorado and California. There are companies that install solar systems either on property or on on buildings. They'll install big systems, and you, as a homeowner, can buy a, a module or several modules, solar panels. And you know, say say you, you you show them your utility bill, and they say, "Well, you need 10 modules." So, for example, in Nashville, Tennessee. You can you can contact the company and they'll say okay Dan you know here's how much electricity you use you'd need ten solar modules and they cost two hundred fifty dollars a piece. We're they're going to stay in our facility, but all the electricity that they produce is charged, it is credited to your account. Now that said, there are other places that I've I've run into uh, to companies that are actually doing this for free they're they're not charging customers and like in West Virginia there are companies that are not even charging customers you just sign up and they and they basically start the the electric power that comes from their their um solar farm gets credited to your account and there's no additional upfront cost which is crazy crazy cool that is wild what's yeah. the
0: incentive in that for
1: them I don't know. They must. I am not sure what they're doing. They're,
0: I wonder if they've got a different funding model.
1: They might. They might be selling it to the utility indirectly, and you know they're generating it at a at a at a lower cost and just selling it to the utility. And I, I honestly don't know what their what their model is. I was shocked when I heard about it. I was absolutely shocked. Hmm. Um, I saw it at a Mother Earth News fair when I was in Pennsylvania. I talked, stopped, and talked to the gal from the company. And most people, you know, most people, she said, kind of think. Well, this is too good to be true. It just can't possibly be true. But um, she assured me that was the case. So check into community solar. Another option is a lease. There are a lot of companies in the United States that will actually install a solar system on your home at no cost to you. And basically, they pay for the equipment, they install it, and you get electricity now from your solar system, and you pay them directly. So let's say, Oliver, say you're paying $0.10 a kilowatt hour from the utility grid, from your power company. They would maybe charge you 9 to $0.9.5 a a kilowatt hour. So you get a little bit of a savings, and usually after about 15 to 18 years, that solar system is yours. So from that point on, your electricity is free. So the, the advantage of that is you don't have to come up with upfront money. The disadvantage, and someone else handles everything, the disadvantage is that you don't get all the tax breaks and, you know, things that, that the benefits you're. Okay, yeah. If, if you had installed that system yourself, um, you'd, you'd be generating electricity roughly at six cents a kilowatt hour. So it'd be cheaper for you in the long run to do it yourself. But if you don't have that upfront money, this is a way to get into the market. And like I said, after 15 to 18 years, that system's yours. And these systems will operate easily for 30 years. You know, the modules come with a 25-year warranty. That You've got another 15 years of free electricity. So it's a heck of a way to get into solar. It's an awfully good way. Now, less common, there are some communities where people will go in together and buy modules in bulk you know they might they might the 10, 10 or 20 families might go in together and buy a trailer load of modules and they end up getting a pretty good discount now there aren't too many programs like that that I've heard of but it is something to look into to see if there are any kind of community uh, programs where where they're buying in bulk and, and getting the equipment at a discount and saving customers money that way
0: now, you've thrown out a handful of figures there, around $25,000, $30,000 perhaps. Is that reflecting sort of the, the size or the cost of a system that would accommodate sort of the, hour, or the average power consumption of a U.S. home?
1: Yeah, most homes right now, you know, and this really varies. Most homes that are mixed fuel, in other words, electricity and natural gas or propane, Most of them will require about a 10KW system, a 10,000 watt system, and it's about $3 a watt. National average is a little higher. It's like three and a quarter or something. So you're looking at roughly $32,000 is your upfront cost for that solar system. Now, right now, there's a federal tax credit at 25%, so you get that back. So the system would cost 25% less than that. So so $8,000 less than that would be your cost. Now, if you've got an all electric home, <laughs> Lord, now we're looking at double or triple that size. So it, it's, it, it's more costly. So this is why I tell you first thing off is get in there and find ways to save energy. So you don't need a 10kW. You might be able to get by with a 7kw or a 5kw system. Save that energy first. Find ways to trim your electrical demand and then you'll need a smaller solar system. Now, can you give
0: us maybe some examples from your own installation in your house? Because you talked about how many power saving methods you've implemented yourself through uh, just the insulation alone, I would imagine would take a huge bite out of that. And if you're sort of, on a hybrid system that uses either natural gas or propane for some of the more consumptive, um, uh, appliances, what could you expect to, to pay on, on like a significantly reduced consumption home like that?
1: Uh, now are you asking me how much can you save? How much energy could I, how, how can I, I'm how
0: wondering much- if, uh, if you can give us an example from either your own home or others that you've seen where people have taken those more drastic measures to reduce their consumption and how low they've realistically gotten down without having to compromise a huge amount of comfort or the, the, the appliances that they use in their home.
1: You know, I don't have any numbers offhand, but the savings are enormous. And one thing we should, we should put in, we should, people should realize, is that by making your home more energy efficient, it's actually going to be more comfortable. Sure. It's going to be a lot more comfortable. When I taught at Colorado College, we often went out in a the community. The, the school was really big on community service. So I taught an energy class at Colorado College, and we would go into these homes in the community, and we would energy retrofit. Unfortunately, we never got to look at energy bills before and after, but we would do things like uh, we would run these tests, to determine how leaky these homes were, how how much air leakage occurs in these homes, and I remember one home in particular. We we went and did this this energy audit on this home, and we, this device that we use to measure leakiness basically simulates a twenty mile an hour wind blowing on a home. And when we went in there, we our first measurements would be were that when the wind was blowing twenty miles an hour, there, the Air infiltration rate was like 8,500 cubic feet per minute. So Whoa. When, and a cu- <laughs> yeah, a cubic foot of air is about the size of a basketball. So when the wind's blowing on that house, they've got roughly 8,500 basketballs full of cold air coming into their home. Now, we went into that house for two or three hundred bucks. Let's just say three hundred bucks. We did all the labor. And, and we, we sealed up the leaks. That's the most important thing people should do in a home is get in there and seal up all those leaks around doors and windows and at floor level. And we went in and sealed up the leaks and then we insulated, added insulation to the ceiling and we were able to drop that, decrease that air infiltration by half, by 50%. Still not perfect, still not perfect, but that... Two or $300 probably closer to $300 is going to make that home so much more uh, efficient and so much more comfortable it's unbelievable it's not it's not difficult to reduce your electric your energy bill by 25 percent and the most important thing to do is to hire an energy auditor who will come in and do a blower door test that's the test i was just referring to that's the test that determines how leaky your home is and that little test might cost you three to six hundred dollars and then once they do the test and they'll do other things as well they'll look at insulation levels and appliances to see where you might be able to save energy and lighting and all that all that stuff but um Once they determine how leaky your house is, they can go around and seal up those leaks and make your house so much more airtight, which is going to make it a lot warmer in the winter and a lot cooler in the summer. That's the first and most important thing anybody who's listening to us right now can do is just get out there and get an energy audit of their home and seal up those leaks, then add insulation. And then let's talk solar. Let's, then let's see how much solar you're actually going to need or wind energy. Sure.
0: Now, along those lines, Dan, I'm wondering your take on new, more energy efficient appliances. Because from what I've heard, though, there have been a lot of advancements in the technology. As people use less in their appliances, they just use their appliances more often to make up the difference. Have you heard much about this?
1: Well, I don't, you know, I don't know if that's true. Like with, you know, if you buy an energy efficient refrigerator or an energy efficient uh, freezer, you're just, you're going to save enormous amounts of money. I I started in this business in the seventies and a typical refrigerator in the seventies used upwards of 2000 kilowatt hours a year. Now you can get a fancy refrigerator with ice in the door and automatic defrost that maybe uses maybe uses a quarter of that electricity, so it really pays to buy energy-efficient appliances. Mm. Absolutely. Now, what kind of, what, what, uh, what particular appliances have you been hearing about? That's a kind of a generalization. What, what have you been hearing about that people use more of?
0: Well, I don't know that it's necessarily using more of the same appliances that save energy. But when people either feel better about having saved in one area, they feel liberated to consume in <laughs> other areas, and they end up kind of evening out overall?
1: Oh, goodness. That may be the case. I don't know. I know back when I was in a uh, univ- young u- university teacher, I was an avid kayaker, and I had a car that got 50 miles per gallon every. Kayak trip we ever took every bird watching trip we ever took to Mexico. Everybody said let's take Dan's car you know. <laughs> <laughs> but but that is interesting I have not heard about that, but I wouldn't put it past Americans They think oh well, we're saving energy here we could just you know get more like exactly electricity. <laughs> they get lax about other things I yeah. see it. I um, think, Like people eat chicken for dinners so, they can have a dessert, you know, the lower fat meat. Sure. A dessert,
0: that sure. Kind of <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole level of psychology that I don't know anything about. <laughs> but yeah. so, along the lines of these appliances, have you seen any other promising innovations and advances, especially in home scale renewable energy systems, that, that you'd like to mention here that give you a lot of optimism that these will be implemented more widely soon?
1: Well, um, there are some really and if if we're talking uh renewable energy systems there are some there are some new technologies on the horizon and um people always ask me you know should i just wait you know if you've got a solar cell it's 17 or 18 percent efficient now you know shouldn't i just wait till they get up to 25 or 30 percent and and my answer is almost always no. No, my answer is always no, is get it now. Um, You know, the improvements in efficiency have been very, very slow to make it to market. And when you hear on the news about some brand new solar cell, it's 30% efficient, and you've got some solar guy trying to sell you one that's 18% efficient. Bear in mind that that 30% efficient solar cell is in the laboratory. (laughs) You know, it's not made commercial production, or if it is, it's used solely in outer space where they can afford to put an expensive solar module out there. Right, so right. there's some really interesting stuff uh, coming along with quantum dot to solar cells, um, some organic solar cells, some very, very promising stuff, but it's a ways from getting to market. So just get out there and buy efficient solar mo- conventional mo- uh, modules. they will last 30 40 50 years you will not be disappointed sure and i would imagine
0: that it works like so many other types of technology you'll pay two three four times the price to get the latest model the most efficient one the best processor, whatever it might be and last year's models are you know nearly as good and now a fraction of the price because they've been one year outdated or they're just they're just slightly older
1: yeah, I bought one of the first calculators that hit the market. It cost me two hundred and fifty dollars. Oh my and goodness! Get this: it added, it subtracted, it multiplied, it divided, and it did square roots and squares <laughs> for <Wow>. two hundred fifty dollars.
0: <laughs> Ten years <laughs> later, give those things away now. Everyone's got them on <laughs> their phones.
1: They might be, they might be good antiques.
0: <laughs> right, right. Yeah,
1: so I'm, I'm with you. Just get what you can now. Get the, get efficient stuff now, and and don't wait wait for the technology to, to improve. One of the things that I want to say that just drives me crazy is we're always hearing politicians say, well, you know, with advances in solar technology, we can make this happen. We've got the technology here now. Mm. We do not have to wait for any innovation. We have cost-effective technology. It's available now. Yeah, We just not wait for researchers to come up with the two percent more efficient module, Click the stuff in now.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I completely agree. Now, Dan, this has been a really good overview of all of these different types and uh, considerations for small scale energy. Do you have any personal advice for people who are looking to get started? We talked a little bit about how to assess a site, but what are some other things that maybe they should consider that we might not have gone over?
1: Well, we pretty much covered everything. I mean, l- looking at, first of all, um, how much energy they use. This is where I, if I, a client came to me and asked me that question, I'd say, hey, let's, how much energy do you use? How much energy do you use? Where can we cut back? Let's do that. Now let's think about the solar system or a wind system. Now, And the, the next level of thinking is do I want grid tied, off grid, or grid tied with battery backup? And then, then you have to just select the system that's going to work for you. Are you in a good wind site? Are you in just a good solar site? Um, do you need solar electricity and hot water? You know, that's the thinking process. Really, is it? How do we? How how can we be more efficient? What kind of system do I want? Do I want to be off the grid, or do I want to have that backup power, or do I just not care? You know, our... are uh, grid interruptions so rare that it doesn't make sense for me to go off, and and then then you have to carefully select what syst- what whether you want solar electric or wind electric or um, uh, micro hydro, but don't forget hot water, don't forget space heating. And, I mean that's that's pretty we pretty much covered it, and if you start looking for installers, find someone who's been in the business for a while. Um, it just makes sense to go with people that have been doing it for a, for a goodly amount of time. They, they have the most experience. They know what they're doing. So look, when you, when you shop around, I hate to say this to all the newbies in the field, but you know just look for people who have been in the business for a while and, and, and maybe five or ten years and look at how many systems they've installed. Uh, what uh, what kind of reputation they have. It's really good to check out in advance, call some of their customers. And how were they? Did they get the work done quickly? Did they do a good job? You know, were they clean? You know, did they clean up the work site? If you had a problem, were they there the next day or, the, you know, two days later, not two months later? And, you know, that's the sort of thing you need to look in, into as well.
0: Absolutely. I think that's good advice just for... Generally looking for any service provider. Absolutely. Great. So, Dan, before I let you go here, can you tell our listeners how they can get in contact with you and find many of those resources and books that we've been uh, glossing over?
1: Well, all my books are available in bookstores and through my publisher, New Society Publisher, but also through the more conventional uh, outlets like uh, Barnes & Noble and of course, amazon.com. So you can get your books there. I used to sell them through my website, but I've closed that down and, and we're just basically selling through the conventional sources. Now, there are some books that I've written on my own and published myself. I've written books on Chinese greenhouses and uh, books on total self-sufficiency, books on living off-grid, and I sell them myself. And um, you can learn about it. I, I, I have a website called Wind River Music, Dot, uh, dot .net. And, and I have a list of those books on there and you can, you can purchase them directly through me.
0: Fantastic. Well, I'll make sure to link to all those resources in the show notes for this episode when it's published. And Dan, it was such a pleasure finally getting to talk to you. I've really enjoyed the resources that you've put out there. This is the first time uh, by going through some of these manuals that these different systems were, were put in a simple enough way that it didn't seem so daunting. And I feel like I finally got the concept and have been able to uh, likewise recommend some of these things to my clients as well. So thanks so much for taking the time to put that out there and for being with us here
1: today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: All right. Well, we'll catch up again soon. Thanks so much. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet. Planet that we share. I'm very grateful to all of you who have added comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at infoabundantedge.com, and all of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again in next week's session.